my troubles seem so far away But now it seems they're here to stay Scale one to ten game. Okay. On the scale of one to ten, Brooks is how good at the guitar. I'm gonna go with seven and a half, eight. And I've heard some tens. It's not because of straight skill. It's because you've got like some like, some some good style. I like that. On scale of one to ten, Jamie's eyes are a ten or thirteen. Can I go off the scale? She's got those pet shop eyes. 
we could maybe turn it into a song. no idea what happened, so I can't well, tell the story. You got in trouble. I got in trouble for sitting there and having eyeballs, yes. Not my problem. Well, most of us don't sit there and have eyeballs. You are obviously having eyeballs. Didn't mean to, but they're in my head. I... Oh, there's somebody trying to recycle. Trying to recycle. Looking in the recycling. Anything? Well, I'll get some more. Of life. I didn't say anything. All I was talking about was what I like about life. You gotta close that. You're not talking about anything now. Man. Man. Okay. Sorry, sorry, radio listener, if there is one out there. If there is um, one. We're totally, we're totally no, 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 doing no, no, no. this. Hold on. Uh, lackadaisical. Let's, let's go back. If there is one radio listener, they're obviously stoked because they're still listening to us for a reason. So they're actually into this. They're into our process. They're into the creative process of what we're doing here. Or lack thereof. No, this is a creative process. There's, a, there's an eyeball drawn on the table. Like a, like a dollar bill. You know the eyeball, the secret eyeball on the dollar bill? <laughs> okay, we're gonna listen to some tunes. This song's called Mr. Moda. I like it. Come to my, come to my DJ set tonight, listener, fearful listener. We're I'm doing a DJ set of like classic soul, rock, oldies, funk, jazz, maybe even some cool metal shit, and definitely this song by the Lively Ones. Tonight it's a free show. It's at the Lucky Horseshoe in Bernal Heights, San Francisco. They don't have a goddamn horseshoe. As drink, far as I saw. Drink Last specials, cool shit. And, uh, have a bar called the Lucky Horseshoe and not have a fucking horseshoe. I will plant a horseshoe in the bar somewhere. If you can find it, I'll buy you a double whiskey ginger. This is the lively ones with Mr. Moe. I want a triple whiskey. People get doubles. I want a triple.
and welcome to the weekly review with Roman. Today is April 29th, 2016. That was Prince with Fury. And I, I like the idea of continuing to play Prince for as long as possible. The Current, which is a wonderful radio station out of Minneapolis, they played all of Prince's catalog in alphabetical order, which was great because um, various parts uh, during those two days when I would listen in, get to hear a chunk of songs and then listen in later on in the day. And Prince is, is still playing and it's awesome to hear songs I'd never heard before as well as those I was familiar with. And that was just really awesome and also just a great way of bonding with people since Prince clearly touched and influenced so many folks. And outside Green Apple Books here in San Francisco, they have dedicated a bench to Prince. They've painted it purple, and I very much look forward to checking it out. So again, celebrating the life and all the art that, that Prince created and shared with us and feeling very fortunate that we are around to experience that. Um, it's it's San Francisco. <laughs> I don't know where else I would be. I guess I could be somewhere else, but that's where we are broadcasting from. We're here in the Mission on 21st in Florida. Yesterday was the 11th annual Poems Under the Dome at City Hall, which I had the privilege of reading, at, and that was very cool. And uh, it was my first time there. I'd been to City Hall before, but my first time at Poems Under the Dome. And uh, Supervisor John Avalos had folks in his office ahead of time, which was really cool for this little, not quite party, but a bit of like a celebration, which was awesome. And they had, you know, some drinks and some food. And folks were there gathered, maybe 30 of us. And just to have his office open to people was really cool. And they had a couple folks perform some music, a couple people perform poetry, and John Avalos wrote a po uh, read a poem. And I thought that was really very cool because, and it felt very, I guess, what San Francisco is supposed to be or was, and to, to kind of experience that, to be in this room with some people I knew, some people I didn't, um, in City Hall, uh, to be kind of celebrating and to feel very unified, I thought was really awesome. That was really cool. And the poetry reading itself was, was pretty rad. And it's great just to hear so many people speak and to, to share their words and some really great, uh, I wouldn't call it necessarily a performance. I mean, it was a performance. There's a there's a great mic out in Oakland, uh, the Queer Open mic on Tuesdays at Perch. And um, they uh, refer to the performances. Uh, they don't even call them performances. They're more called love shares, which I think is awesome. And it also puts like less pressure on people. And also just the, the recognition that when people come up to the mic, whatever they're doing, whether it be comedy or music or poetry or spoken word or dance or video, whatever someone wants to share, just even ideas, the idea that it's a love share and that people are sharing from their heart. And uh, just feeling very yeah grateful that those places and spaces exist and how wonderful it would be if there are more of them. I often feel that way. There was a map, which was like the Mission Arts Project, and they had a, this is maybe a month ago. I can't keep track of time anymore. I really can't. I have no idea when things happen. I have, I have some idea. Um, part of it, I think, living in the Bay Area where the seasons don't really change. So it's like, what time of year is it? I don't know. It's not snowing. It ha hasn't ever snowed, really. It's not super hot. I don't know what time of year it is. That's tricky. So that I think that's part of it. And then also uh, not necessarily working a Monday through Friday, 9 to 5, uh, and just working different days and different hours, um, not necessarily on the on a certain time clock. So I sometimes forget when things happen. Anyway, there's a, I want to say maybe a month ago, probably a little bit sooner than that, outside the Mission Library, they had uh, an open mic, which is really cool, just out on the sidewalk. And I really love when there are performances outside because that means that people who are just walking by who aren't even there with the intention of listening or checking it out end up hearing it. And I think just the, the serendipitous, serendipitousness of that is really cool. 
and how awesome if that would be if there were more of them around, more mics and more places for people to share. So I think that's great. I'm in good a good mood today, which is great, and uh, I'm not going to go into it too much because why why ruin the mystery? I guess. Um, of course, the, there have been still. I have been feeling very frustrated and triggered by all the the anti-LGBT legislation that's been going on across the country, especially within North Carolina. And Michael Jordan has actually stepped up against Pat McCrory, uh, which is good. Um, I have come, I mean, my feelings about Michael Jordan, I grew up, I was a kid in the Chicago suburbs and was a diehard Bulls fan. And then I learned uh, recently, within the last few years, again, time, I don't know, that he has invested in, in private prisons and that makes me super sad. Um, however, I was very grateful to hear that he is stepping up to Pat McCrory about the HB2 bill, which is ridiculous. And a lot of folks have been stepping up, which is great. That's one positive thing that has come from these idiot, I mean, just these asinine laws and people in power who want to create laws and pass legislation that end up harming people who are oftentimes the ones who are most uh, oppressed and uh, hurt. And it's, I've had my own experiences of being asked to leave bathrooms. I've had it happen with, to friends I've been with, and I've heard about it happen to a lot of people I know. And it's not fun. It's not cute. It's really just it's just a terrible thing. So for folks who haven't experienced it, imagine you're in a public place, you're at an establishment, you're a customer, you're giving them money, and you need to use the bathroom. And people, imagine like someone following you into, I was following into a stall once, which is really messed up. And this was pre, before I transitioned, this is, uh, someone followed me into the stall and I had to be like, no, I belong here. And I kind of just gave them hell. And I'm glad I did, but it was not, fun and that of course is something that's very minor compared to what so many people go through people are attacked people have been beaten up um just for going into the bathroom and it's something that's so simple that it just kind of boggles my mind there's a good meme i saw this morning that i almost shared i, I hesitate to share things even though, even though I've, even if i like them a lot on facebook i have a really weird thing with what i decide to share what i don't decide to share and then i share things and regret it anyway there's a there was a, a meme that was pretty much like uh, it was a picture of, you can see a face, a woman's face kind of peering out under a bathroom stall that was like, let me see if you have a penis or a vagina so I can make sure that you don't make me feel uncomfortable. And that's pretty much what it is. It's, again, it's putting uh, cis people's uh, comfort, their idea of comfort at the expense of uh, trans folks or gender nonconforming or however folks want to be, not want to be labeled, but are labeled because that's unfortunately the only language that we have for now until things change and evolve a bit. It's putting those other people's, their idea of what comfort is, even though it's based on a lot of propaganda and fear and untruths. And again, there have been more U.S. senators who have been arrested for sexual misconduct in bathrooms than trans people. So they're the, I mean, and of course I don't necessarily believe in prisons and jails, but if we're going to put people in jail, it should be these uh, Congress people who are really problematic and killer cops. Uh, so while we, have the, while we have the jails up, for, for sure, might as well at least put in the people who deserve to be there. So I feel conflicted about that because, again, I'd like to live in a world without prisons at all. However, it's my, my main, one of my main arguments against it is that there are folks who are innocent who are in there. There are folks in there for nonviolent offenses. And I'll get to a story about that, which is pretty cool. Uh, well, no, that sounded wrong. But there's there, there, it's the idea of like getting people out of prison who are in there for nonviolent offenses who shouldn't be in there at all. And then there are people who are running the country 
running things, doing things, and they're not in jail at all. Dick Cheney's not in jail, so if he's not in jail, if Karl Rove isn't in jail, and someone who, you know, smoked a joint once is, then uh, the whole, that whole institution is flawed, putting it mildly. So I guess that will lead into the, the first story, which I'll, I will pull up here. And there's a few, I, I always like to have always, always is a strong word. I often like to have positive stories because this show depresses the hell out of me. I'm not going to lie. I've been doing this now for two and a half years. It's a really depressing show to read the news, to force myself to read it, um, to speak it aloud and recognize what's happening. Uh, it depresses me. I'm not going to say it doesn't. And I'm also not necessarily going to stop doing it because I think there's a certain... Uh, something good can happen with being uncomfortable is I'd rather... I could have my head in the sand and not, and not you know know what's happening, or I can face it as best I can and recognize what's happening, share it, educate myself, and then at least have some idea of what's happening. So I feel like that's that's a positive thing. So the story I'm going to get to when I find it, if I find it, well, it'll it'll come up at some point. We're pretty casual here, and. Um, Oh, well, let's start with this one instead, because this is, uh, this is also related, and I found it first. The story I was going to get to, which I will get to, is that Oregon, which has now legalized marijuana, they are looking to uh, uh, undo the sentencing for folks who are in prison for, for Oregon. I'm going to start off with that one instead of this other guy getting, because there's uh, Dennis Hastert, who is like this, yeah, I'll start off with him. Uh, Dennis Hastert sentenced to 15 months and apologizes for sex abuse. So here's like this dude. He's not, oh God, I can't even, I'm not even, I'm going to do very brief. <sighs> I think the older I get, the more I realize what I like and what I don't like and what really offends me. And the thing that probably offends me the most are people in positions of power who are hypocrites, who cause a lot of harm. And, you know, I get we're, we're all human, we're all imperfect. However, when you have the ability to pass laws that damage families and tear people apart, and you're a hypocrite about it, and you do a lot of evil things, that's like, I don't like the idea of having an enemy, but that is what makes me, my blood boil the most. That and, like, war profiteers and people who profit off of causing other people harm. That's, I think, the worst thing in the world. That goes beyond just making a mistake, as we all, we're all human, we all make mistakes. However, continually doing really hurtful, heinous behavior, and then as well as somehow being a representative for the people is, uh, uh, that's like just goes above and beyond. So I'll read the first, this is from the New York Times, which is really super mainstream and very right-leaning for me, but it's about this D-bag going to jail, so we'll just start off with that. Uh, so Jay Dennis Hastert, once among the nation's most powerful politicians, was sentenced on Wednesday to 15 months in prison for illegally structuring bank transactions in an effort to cover up his sexual abuse of young members of a wrestling team he coached decades ago. In a hearing that was by turns harrowing and revelatory, Mr. Hastert publicly admitted for the first time to abusing his athletes, was confronted in emotional address by one of the former wrestlers and the sister of another, and faced a long, scathing rebuke from the judge. Mr. Hastert, 74, who made an unlikely rise from a beloved small-town wrestling coach in Illinois to Speaker of the House in Washington, sat slouched in a wheelchair in a federal courtroom here as a judge announced that he was rejecting pleas for probation from Mr. Hastert's lawyers, as well as prosecutors' endorsement of a shorter prison stay. 
While the sentencing hearing was technically about a violation of a banking rules and regulations, the proceedings focused squarely on the underlying reason for Mr. Hastert's puzzling bank withdrawals, his abuse of young wrestlers who had viewed him as a role model. The defendant is a serial child molester. By the way, trigger warning, I should do this before the show because the news is like super triggering all the time. Uh, so a bit late for that, but here we go. The defendant is a serial child molester, said Judge Thomas M. Durkin of Federal District Court as Mr. Hastert sat impassively, often staring downward, hands crossed on his on his lap. He added, some actions can obliterate a lifetime of good works. Nothing is more stunning than having serial child molester and speaker of the house in the same sentence. And that's, that's America. Mr. Hastert ha was not charged with sexual abuse because statutes of limitation for acts in the 1960s and 70s have run out. The judge noted pointedly that punishment for such a conviction would have been far worse. Illegally structuring bank transactions to keep such abuse secret, the felony count to which Mr. Hastert pleaded guilty carried a maximum sentence of five years in prison. Mr. Hastert, whose date to report to prison has yet to be set, was ordered to pay $250,000 in fines, never to contact his victims, and to receive sex offender treatment. If there is a public shaming of the defendant because of the conduct he's engaged in, so be it, Judge Durkin said. Mr. Hastert has had a series of illnesses since last year, including a stroke, a bloodstream infection, and a spinal infection. Factors his lawyers and family members argue to be taken into account in the sentencing. They urge the judge to consider the entire arc of his life and career, including his years of public service. As Mr. Hastert prepared to address the judge, he used a walker to rise to his feet, but his voice was firm and clear. I'm not going to quote him. This is me, Roman Reimer. I'm not going to read what this... I need to find new words I find that aren't offensive, because I, I don't like calling people dicks, because that's an insult to dicks. And D-bags, I don't know. It seems somehow... Eh. Anyway, not a good human being. I, and that's also a qualifier. However, it, I don't... This guy... No. No, 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 no. Um... So I'll just get to the, the end of the article here and see if we can... Uh, all right. So uh, after payments began around 2010, the federal authorities took notice of large unexplained withdrawals Mr. Hastert was making from his bank. Uh, when told that large withdrawals had to be reported, Mr. Hastert began drawing smaller sums, prosecutors say, to avoid notice. The wrestler sued Mr. Hastert this week, saying he still owed him $1.8 million of their agreed-to settlement. Before the hearing, a long list of supporters from Mr. Hastert's wife, Jean, to Tom DeLay, oh, I remember him, the former House Majority Leader, had sent letters to Judge Durkin. He doesn't deserve what he's going through, Mr. DeLay wrote. But for nearly 45 minutes on Wednesday, Judge Durkin held forth in a passionate, often contemptuous tone with little interruption. He said that Mr. Hastert had manipulated the FBI and the United States Attorney's Office, diverted their investigation, and knowingly tried to set up individual A actions that were intentional, thought out, and desperate. The judge spoke broadly about child sexual abuse and the lifelong damage it inflicts. Can you imagine the whispers, the finger pointing, the sideways glances if you're a 14-year-old boy and you accuse the town hero of molesting you, he said. He dismissed the defense's arguments that Mr. Hastert was too old, frail, or ill to be properly taken care of in federal prison. And he ended with a blunt synopsis. This is a horrible case, a horrible set of circumstances, horrible for the defendant, horrible for the victims, horrible for our country, he said. I hope I never have to see a case like this again. Court adjourned. Oof. So again, you can read the full article uh, in the New York Times. Again, not a paper necessarily fully I'm on board with, um, but each reporter has their own view. So, and uh, the, the authors of this article was uh, Monica Davey, Julie Boseman, and Mitch Smith, and this came out yesterday.
so yeah again that's kind of a theme of the show with people in positions of power doing really terrible things and the, also the thing with like paying people off it, it's money doesn't bring back people who have been hurt or murdered and i it's it's kind of disgusting to live in a in a country where uh that is something that people uh, can turn to um so i'm looking now right now for the article uh about oregon so that might take some time as as we get there but i feel like it's kind of in the theme with uh just the, the theme of like who gets sent to prison and who doesn't and again here's this guy who people in positions of power oftentimes people don't stand up to them and they can get away with a lot including passing really bad legislation so i think that's uh that's pretty pretty sad but it's good that at least he's now being held accountable for his actions, even though it's too little and too late, in in my opinion. So what else has been has been happening here? Here we go. We found it. That's great. Good things happening all the time. So this is from the United Media Publishing, and it's you can find it at unitedmediapublishing.com. Oregon will pay reparations to individuals formerly convicted of marijuana-related crimes. Oh, this is from last year, but that's still good. So this is written by Priscilla Mason. Um, state officials have announced that starting July 15th of last year, Oregon will begin issuing reparations payments to those previously convicted of marijuana-related crimes within the past decade. The decision comes hot on the heels of the marijuana legalization measure, which takes effect July 1st throughout Oregon. Carol Shapiro is the newly appointed coordinator for the Oregon Department of Marijuana Reparations, and he elaborated on how the system will work to get those affected by previous laws back on their feet. These were essentially incidents that should have never even been tried as crimes to begin with. Thousands of people have paid dearly over the years for laws which have criminalized a substance that is basically less dangerous than any over-the-counter painkiller. Individuals who have served prison time for drug offenses involving marijuana within the last 10 years will automatically be eligible for a refund of any fines and fees incurred as a result of, these of those convictions, as well as compensation for pain and suffering endured from being incarcerated. These parties will also have their records automatically expunged. We are hoping that these actions will correct the injustices previously inflicted upon innocent citizens and help them go on with their lives. This news comes as a bittersweet relief to those who have faced serious consequences within the last 10 years for their involvement in marijuana growing operations. People such as Portland native Marcus Ford, who spent two years in prison in 1999 after his marijuana growing operation was discovered by police. What can I, what can I say? It's not like I'm going to get those years of my life back or get the job back that I lost at the time. I don't think the federal government is innocuous. Is, oh wait, I don't, I don't think that the federal government is aware of the scope of what people have to deal with when they are sent to jail for things as innocuous as marijuana. I didn't see my kids for two years. I spent an additional four years on probation. It literally made my life hell and caused my family so much stress and anguish. I am glad they are trying to make up for it, but basically, no amount of money is going to replenish what I lost when I got locked up for growing. It's a relief that they understand the error of their ways now, but keep in mind that a lot of us have paid the ultimate price in this pointless war. Oof. So... Yeah, uh, I've got nothing to, to add to that. Um, I'm going to play some music. 
we'll be taking a break from Prince, but we'll be back with some more Prince before the end of the show for sure. I went to this punk rock karaoke thing uh, again. What's time? It was in, within the last week, I think it's safe to say, and I heard some new songs I hadn't heard before, and I like I dig songs with a political message. So here's one by a band called Refused called New Noise. And then we'll be back uh, with some more stories.
And welcome back. That was refused. We slept out here for six uh, days. You know, so we haven't went home. We haven't done. And uh, it's. Uh, I'm surprised I don't play more angry music on this show because I feel like that kind of goes in line with uh, the the spirit and the energy and listening to the lyrics it's pretty much the idea is a lot of what we're told to like listen to and just go along with is old and old in the way not just old in the way that it's not really constructive and needs to be challenged and we need to create new ways of being so uh i I totally dig that so next up um there's been the hunger strike which has been happening now for almost a week outside the mission police station i encourage folks to go by and check out and support and this is on valencia and 17th street folks have been camped out there now for quite a while and here are some interviews with folks who have been uh doing the hunger strike outside of the station we've slept out here for six days so we haven't went home we haven't done a part-time hunger strike we've slept out here we're on 17th in valencia uh, the mission san francisco police department station and we're having a hunger strike this is day six basically we come to the conclusion that like we said we exhausted every avenue the hunger strike seems to be gaining more momentum every single day and it's necessary because the city is doing its best to ignore the issues surrounding police brutality, the misuse of police tactics, police violence, and of course we're out here fighting for justice for our brother Mario Woods. I'm encouraged by the energy of the men and the women, young folks who have come out here and they're trying to take a stand for Mario and for others to make sure that this stuff stops. As like this, the hashtag that we have here, it stops today. Like it has to stop. And if we do not do anything, it will continue. Pardon me, pardon me, pardon me. So, good evening. I'm uh, Captain Perea from Mission Station. Tonight is our tonight is our community meeting. It's from six o'clock to seven o'clock. Okay. The room that we have has a capacity for the fire department of 49 people. So we are going to count the number of people that come in. If you'd like to come into the meeting, you can line up against this uh, these barricades here. Once we meet the capacity, we will keep track of who exits. If somebody exits then another person come in. If three people exit, then three more people can come in. Okay? Thank you very much. So if you'd like to line up, it's it's to the right here. Okay, okay. mic check. The, the hunger strikers have asked no one to go in until they're back up in front and they get in. So please wait. Okay, good evening. I'm Captain Perea. I'm the committee officer here at Mission Station. This is our community meeting that we have the last Tuesday of every month. It's 6 o'clock and we go to 7. So, um, the way that these are normally run is we give information about things that are going on in the district and we save the majority of the time for questions. So, this month, most recently, we had a uh, community resource fair at Garfield Park that was April 27th. We have a request as a community. You cannot fit everyone that's outside into this room. There are a number of people standing outside that should be in this room. 
to listen to this meeting to have a conversation with you. Because that's the case, our demand is that you host this meeting outside with the community. We have a megaphone for you, but you are more than welcome to come speak with us out there. We can have a conversation. Will that request be met? Okay, questions are up This is not a question, this is a demand. Okay. Well, we'll save demands for the end, too. Great. I'd like everyone to stand up, and we're about to fire Chief Sir. What do we want? Fire Chief Sir! attention the purpose, the purpose of this come outside with the us. purpose of this meeting is to address concerns from the community to not have his mandatory meeting. Brother, I'm sorry you have to wear that badge and also do what you do. It's disappointing, because I know you want to stand with us. Oh, you don't want to stand with us. You're complacent to the fact that black and brown people are getting killed. They're violating our constitutional rights to peacefully assemble in a public space. We're fighting because we want Chief Sir to resign or and, and or be fired. And the reason we want that is because there's blood on his hands. There's been injustices in this city, black and brown be people getting killed indiscriminately with immunity. And we're tired of it. And I'm on day seven on a hunger strike and they got my blood pressure through the roof. So I hope you see this. I hope you share. Because I will stay out here as long as it takes. Amilcar Perez Lopez, Alex Nieto, Mario Woods, Luis Congora.
Harding's young brother, Kenneth Harding Jr. Give it up, Kenneth Harding Jr. Come on, 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 Kenneth
Sergeant uh, Yolanda Williams was one of the, was one of two African American police officers who were mentioned by name in a series of racist text messages that were sent by a group of fellow police officers. Those text messages emerged last year in court filings related to departmental racism. Williams is one of the only police officers to ever participate in the Blue Ribbon Panel on Police Bias. That panel was formed by District Attorney George Gascon after a number of incidents with the San Francisco Police Department proved they had a serious problem with racism on their force. Williams has also headed an organization called Officers for Justice, which seeks which seeks to out dirty cops and those with overt biases that prevent them from impartially doing their jobs. But Williams says these activities have made her the target of other officers and the San Francisco Police Officers Association. The SFPO claims there is no systemic or systemic bias among police ranks. They've even called out Williams for claiming otherwise, pointing to her by name. On January 20th, the SFPO wrote a letter that was directly addressed to Williams, which they sent to all officers who are members of the union. President William, um, President Martin Halloran said in the letter, don't like some of the comments William had made in front of Gascon's blue ribbon panel. The POA is disturbed by some of your comments and accusations. For example, you claim that racism is widespread within our department, the letter stated. The POA disagrees. While a handful of officers engaged in racist, racist and homophobic text messaging they were and were condemned for doing so by the POA and by me personally, there is no evidence that racism is widespread throughout the department. On January 14th, Williams had testified that she had witnessed firsthand fellow officers using racial bias in their policing. She had said this is a widespread problem and not an isolated incident. I'm black and I will never be blue enough, she told the panel. I will never be able to prove to them that I deserve to wear the same uniform that they do. Williams said that since the letter targeting her, she has concerns that fellow officers will at the very least not support her if her life is in jeopardy. It leaves me with a sense of uneasiness to the point that I am wondering how safe of an environment I might be in and if, when I call for backup, how fast that backup will come. Williams says that the letter by the police union was a personal attack against me and my constitutional rights of freedom of speech. It sends a clear message that when you go against what they believe in what they believe in, you are then considered an outsider, an outcast, and they attempt to slander your name. So this was uh, written by uh, M. David and S. Wooden, and you can find this at uh, countercurrentnews.com, and this was also came out before there was more uh, racist and homophobic text messages that were revealed. Um, so clearly she's telling the truth, and the the folks, uh, the Lala police want, they will not admit that there is systemic racism within the force. Oh. So, oh. well, that's, I have nothing to add to that. It's just really shitty. Um, I applaud her for, for speaking up, though, and if more cops were to speak up about uh, dirty cops, then uh, a lot of us would have more faith in, in them. Um, although there's many folks who feel we could exist just fine without a without a police force and entirely in the idea that communities can police themselves and communities know each other um so that's that's an option uh moving along how do i make a segue the, the next few stories are they're going to be on the, the depressing end there's a positive i'll do i'll do something that's a little bit more positive so then we can go into the other ones how about that? Before we talk about what's happening in Oklahoma, which is just like, uh, um, something positive. And often I found, I think within the last year, I found that the, po the things that are positive is just when bad things don't happen. 
when bad things that could happen end up being stopped or something that's problematic that has happened ends up being undone. So it's like the story with the the folks in Oregon who have been arrested for marijuana. Now they are being compensated for the time that they were sent to prison. If they hadn't been sent to jail in the first place, then, I mean, that's obviously what would have been the best situation. And the, the best that things that we can do is to somehow uh, stop these really backwards th actions from happening and prevent further backwards actions from happening. And this is exactly what this is about, this next story. And this comes from the Charlotte Observer. At South Carolina transgender bill, uh, <laughs> South Carolina transgender bathroom bill dead. And this was, uh, this came out uh, yesterday, Thursday, April 28th. Um, so the, the, the highlights, uh, bill introduced after North Carolina proposal passed is dead for the year. Um, but, ugh, geez. But sponsor Senator Lee Bright Republican from Spartanburg uh, will try to ban state aid to local governments that pass pro-transgender bathroom laws. Okay, with pro-transgender anything, it's pretty much just giving us the right to exist and the right to move about freely, identify as we identify, and be safe in the world. Uh, the idea that you would label as pro-transgender, it should be just like pro-human pro-human rights. It's not this idea. The same folks go with this uh, idea about how gay rights is like somehow people asking for special privileges when it's really just asking for equal rights. There's nothing, there's nothing special about it. It's just asking for equal respect. <sighs> the way they frame these things. And also, I also just uh, doubt anyone who, ha granted, there's a lot of mis miseducation out there, certainly. But for the folks who put these bills forward, I'm sure they're hiding something because you don't go after people that you know nothing about uh, unless you yourself. It's like you're, you're pointing the finger at someone because you don't yourself want to be discovered. Like this Dennis Hastert guy, he was not a good dude. And all the meanwhile, he was molesting kids. So for the folks in positions of power who are out pointing fingers and wanting to deny other people rights, uh, I, would, I would take a look at this Senator Lee Bright, who's apparently not that bright. Okay, next, roads education bills make Sundays crossover deadline. All right, that's, that's great. All right, and this is written by Toby Talbot. Oh, no, that was a photo, Toby Talbot from the AP. And then the article is written by Jamie Self. That's a cool name. All right, Columbia, a bill to prevent transgender men and women from using the bathroom or locker rooms of their choice is dead for the year. Sponsored by Senator Lee Bright, Republican from Spartanburg, the legislation will miss Sunday's crossover deadline for bills to pass from one legislative chamber to the other. Bills that do not have that deadline have almost no chance of passing this year. Lawmakers head home for the weekend after Thursday's session, and as of Wednesday, Bright only had four of the nine votes needed to bring his bill directly to the Senate floor for a vote. With his bill certain to fail, Bright was planning another way to advance his agenda Wednesday. When the state budget comes up for debate next week, Bright said he will try to add a proposal to ban state aid to local governments that pass laws requiring businesses to allow transgender people to use the bathrooms of their choice. Local governments that require that are telling businesses how to run their restrooms, he said. Bright said that he had high hopes for his no-aid proposal, that his no-aid, uh, and I'm also saying no brain, like no brain involved, no thought involved, proposal will pass. Uh, uh, we'd rather have the full bill, but we'll take what we can get. He's definitely hiding something. Go after this d d jerk. 
it's the best I can come up with. Braid introduced his bill after North Carolina adopted its controversial transgender bathroom law. In two days of hearings, supporters of the proposal were outnumbered by opponents, including transgender high school students and their parents who said the bill could place transgender students in harm's way by outing them to other students, requiring them to use the bathrooms of their biological birth sex in instead of the gender with which they identify. Even if Bright's bill were to reach the Senate floor, Democrats have vowed to block it. Well, good thing for them. Good. That, that, that sounded sarcastic, but it wasn't meant to be. Uh, it's actually a surprise. Like, good. Uh, Gov Republican Governor Nikki Haley also said that the bill was unnecessary and going nowhere this year. Bright said Wednesday he would reintroduce the, his original transgender bathroom bill next year if he wins re-election. Let's hope he doesn't. Uh, three Republicans are challenging Bright in the June GOP primary. We're not going to sacrifice the privacy and safety, what a fucking asshole, of 99.7% of the population because 0.3%, I'm not even going to finish his quote because he's a fucking asshole. And that's why I like reading the news because I get to choose what I choose to say and I'm not going to repeat anything that's really misinformed and hateful. It's pretty much, yeah, misinformed and hateful. And Lee Bright, for folks out there who want to do research on this ding-dong, that's an insult to ding-dongs, they're tasty, uh, find out what, what he's hiding because you don't go after people unless you yourself are why attack people why oh gosh all right well since i'm angry i'll go to the next two stories which are also will probably make you angry if you care about the world and i would assume most folks who do listen to this uh care about the world uh one would hope oh so next is oklahoma as i mentioned uh i've met some cool folks from oklahoma and this is comes from the Daily Coast, and I've read a few other articles as well about this. And this was from uh, last Friday, April 22nd. Uh, hashtag not going back. Oklahoma GOP House and Senate pass egregious bill on abortion. And again, these fucking men, like, more often than not, it's these dudes passing these stupid bills that harm people. And, whew, okay, gonna breathe, gonna relax. Oh, I don't know if I'll relax, but I'm going to breathe. And this was written by Leslie Salzillo. Um, I can't even. The words in my head are obscene. I probably shouldn't take to the keyboard, but then I probably should. To the poorly advised Democrats, liberals, and progressives who say they're not going to vote if their chosen candidate doesn't win, take a look at your fucking future. And that's their words, not mine. I'm not adding swears to this story. In a story earlier today, Meteor Blades writes, abortion remains legal nationwide despite being ever more hampered by forced birther machinations. It therefore seems impossible that a bill just passed by the Oklahoma House of Representatives to pull the license of any doctor who performs an abortion will pass constitutional muster. Blades reports the bill has now passed in the Republican-led House and Senate. It's now up to another Republican lawmaker, Governor Mary Fallon, and you can contact her and tell her not to pass it. And I'll read that about how you can chip, chip in, how you can have your voice shared to, to, to get her to, not get her, but to suggest that it should not be passed. Under the bill, uh, I feel like there should be like a a wall to punch or just punching bags or just things that we can do to with our anger because the fact that there are people in positions of power who are all right i'm gonna read this bill and then uh hope you're sitting down or breathing or doing whatever because it's gonna make you angry under the bill, any doctor who performs an abortion except to save the life of a woman or to preserve her health which uh, would have his or her license taken away 
The Oklahoma State Medical Association has opposed the bill, viewing it as an attempt to intimidate physicians and inject politics into the physician-patient relationship. I'm stunned that this POS bill would get this far, and I'm writing to call for action. If Oklahoma Governor Mary Fallon signs it, she may very well kiss her political career goodbye. She's in a bad spot. Damned if you do, and damned if you don't. Compliments of the good old boys in the good old party, that's GOP, where extremists rule the day. But then, it was her choice to remain a member of a party that votes against women. To contact Governor Fallon, here is her office phone and fax. I am unable to find an email at this time, but uh, when and if you call, please keep in mind that although she is part of the problem, she did not create the bill, nor has she signed it yet. It is hoped she will do the right thing. And Governor Mary Fallon, if you want to send her a letter, I'll read the address, or if you're in Oklahoma, I don't if I have any listeners out in Oklahoma City or you know folks, go give her a visit. Uh, so Oklahoma State Capitol is at 2300 North Lincoln Boulevard, room 212 in Oklahoma City. I can send her a postcard even. Uh, it's Oklahoma City, okay? 73105. Call on the phone, 405-521-2342. Again, that's 405-521-2342. Let your voice be heard. If you have a fax machine and you feel like sending a fax, why not do that? The fax number is 405-521-3353. And uh, then they have a quote from Susan B. Anthony, as there should be, I guess, in a lot of places. Uh, no self-respecting woman should wish or work for the success of a party that ignores her sex. And that's from 1872 long time ago. The debate over our right to choose what's best for our bodies and our future will most likely outlive us, but we fight because it's what our foremothers and forefathers did for us, and it's what we must do for our daughters and their daughters. It's been said in different ways that anti-choice legislation will never end abortions. They will only create unsafe abortions. Be sure we are hashtag not going back to the alley. And not going back is the only part of the hashtag to the alleys after that. Here are 13 large and small reproductive rights organizations and social media groups to visit slash support. They can offer information and or discussion about women's rights and laws against women. Uh, Planned Parenthood, NARL, which I hugely support. I also support Planned Parenthood, but NARL more so. Uh, Pro-Choice America. Now, National Organization for Women, uh, NAF, which is the National Abortion Federation, RH Reality, UniteWomen.org, Abortion.com. That's glad that exists. Uh, fight Laws Against Women, We Are Fuse, and that's F-U-S-E, Abigail Adams Brigade, Pro-Choice Liberals, Stop Patriarchy Now, and Center for Reproductive Rights. Also those last two, yes. Uh, the Guttmacher Institute is an excellent source of women's reproductive data and current legislation. Many thanks to Meteor Blades for reporting this news and for his continued pro-choice advocacy for women's reproductive rights. You can read the story here, and they have a link to that. And so we march on, and we are hashtag not going back. And you can find all the links to all these organizations on the Facebook page, facebook.com slash weeklyrev. I think it's time for some more music. Here's another song that was performed, and it's kind of angry, but also has a nice uh, beat to it. So play this music, and then we'll be back with some more stories, some positive and some... Mm, we'll, 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 we'll find ways to, to make it positive.
Oh, right. Any song that mentions wearing sweatpants, I think is great. That was, uh, the band's called Andrew Jackson Jihad, and the song's called Hate Rain On Me. Next, we're going to have a story from The Intercept, one of my favorite places to find news. And this is written by Glenn Greenwald, whom I used to call my boyfriend, jokingly. Uh, met him once, and I dig his writing, and that he questions uh, authority and uh, just really stands up for what's happening what's going on so this comes from the intercept and you can find that at theintercept.com uh, new study shows mass surveillance breeds meekness fear and self-censorship amen to that and i think that's kind of like what a lot of us already knew and this uh just explains that a little bit more and extrapolates uh some more ideas behind that and why that is and this came out on april 28th that was yesterday all right. A newly published study from Oxford's John Penny provides empirical evidence for a key argument long made by privacy advocates, that the mere existence of a surveillance state breeds fear and conformity and stifles free expression. Reporting on the study, the Washington Post this morning described this phenomenon, if we think that authorities are watching our online actions, we might stop visiting certain websites or not say certain things just to avoid seeming suspicious. The new study documents how, in the wake of the 2013 Snowden revelations, of which 87% of Americans are aware, there was a 20% decline in page views on Wikipedia articles related to terrorism, including those that mentioned Al-Qaeda, car bomb, or Taliban. People were afraid to read articles about those topics because of fear that doing so would bring them under a cloud of suspicion. The dangers of that dynamic were expressed well by Penny. If people are spooked or deterred from learning about important policy matters like terrorism and national security, this is a real threat to proper democratic debate. As the Post explains, several other studies have also demonstrated how mass surveillance crushes free expression and free thought. A 2015 study examined Google search data and demonstrated that, post Snowden, users were less likely to search using search terms that they believed might get them in trouble with the U.S. government, and that these results suggest that there is a chilling effect on search behavior from government surveillance on the Internet. The fear that causes self-censorship is well beyond the realm of theory. Ample evidence demonstrates that it's real and rational. A study from PEN, Pen, America writers, found that one in six writers had curbed their content out of fear of surveillance and showed that writers are not only overwhelmingly worried about government surveillance, but are engaging in self-censorship as a result. Scholars in Europe have been accused of being terrorist supporters by virtue of possessing research materials on extremist groups, while British libraries refuse to house any material on the Taliban for fear of being prosecuted for material, material support for terrorism. There are also numerous psychological studies demonstrating that people who believe they are being watched engaged in behavior far more compliant, conformist, and submissive than those who believe they are acting without monitoring. That same realization served centuries ago as the foundation of Jeremy Bentham's panop panopticon that behaviors of large groups of people can be effectively controlled through architectural structures that make it possible for them to be watched at any given moment, even though they can never know if they are in fact being monitored, thus forcing them to act as if they are always being watched. The same self-censoring chilling effect of the potential of being surveyed was also the crux of the tyranny about which Orwell warned in 1984. 
There was, of course, no way of knowing whether you were being watched at any given moment, how often, or on what system. The thought police plugged in on any individual wire was guesswork. It was even conceivable that they watched everybody all the time. But at any rate, they could plug in your wire whenever they wanted to. You had to live, did live, from habit that became instinct, in the assumption that every sound you made was overheard, and except in darkness, every movement scrutinized. This is a critical, though elusive, point which, as the Post notes, I've been arguing for years, including in the 2014 TED Talk I gave about the harms of privacy erosions. But one of my first visceral encounters with the har this harmful dynamic arose years before I worked on NSA disclosures. It occurred in 2010, the first time I ever wrote about WikiLeaks. This was before any of the group's most famous publications. What prompted my writing about WikiLeaks back then was a secret 2008 Pentagon report that declared the then little-known group a threat to national security and plotted how to destroy it. A report which, ironically enough, was leaked to WikiLeaks, which then published it online. Shortly thereafter, WikiLeaks published a 2008 CIA report describing, precisely it turns out, how the best hope for maintaining popular European support for the war in Afghanistan would be the election of Barack Obama as president, since he would be a pretty popular progressive face on war policies. As a result of that 2008 report, I researched WikiLeaks and interviewed its founder, Julian Assange, and found that they had been engaging in vital transparency projects around the world, from exposing illegal corporate waste dumping in East Africa to political corruption and official lies in Australia. But they had one significant problem. Funding and human resource shortfalls were pre preventing them from processing and publishing numerous leaks. So I wrote an article describing their work and recommended that my readers support that work either by donating or volunteering, and I included links for how they could do so. In response, a large number of American readers expressed in emails in the comment section at private events, I'm sorry, at public events, the fear to me that while they support WikiLeaks work, they were petrified that supporting them would cause them to end up on a government list somewhere, or worse, charged with crimes if WikiLeaks ended up being formally charged as a national security threat. In other words, these were Americans who were voluntarily relinquishing core civil liberties, the right to support journalism they believe in and to politically organize, because of fear that their online donations and work would be monitored and surveyed. Subsequent revelations showing persecution and surveillance against WikiLeaks and its supporters, including an effort to prosecute them for their journalism, proved that these fears were quite rational. There is a reason governments, corporations, and multiple other entities of authority crave surveillance. It's precisely because the possibility of being monitored radically changes individual and collective behavior. Specifically, that possibility breeds fear and fosters collective conformity. That's always been int intuitively clear. Now, there is mounting empirical evidence proving it. Hmm. And I guess there'd be a pen drop, not a mic drop, but a pen drop because ugh, that's that's there. Okay, so this kind of go, goes along with it. I can't. I mean, sometimes I find when I do segues with these stories, it's kind of easy. Uh, it's it's tricky because a lot of times I don't want to read these stories, and uh, I still choose to because uh, people. Not everyone has a chance to share their voice and to share their stories and what's happening with them. So, the very least uh, one can do. Is, is is sure what's happening to them and get the word out 
This comes from Boing Boing, which is a cool site to check out. They have a lot of good articles on there. I've been checking them out for a few years now, and this is by Cory Doctorow. And this came out uh, Wednesday, April 13th. Te in Texas, prisoners whose families maintain their social media presence face 45 days in solitary. Texas. Oh. And I know some folks from Texas who are in Texas. I visited once. Uh... Seriously, this, this, uh, the state. Uh, okay. All right. I, I don't have anything to add to that. I'm just, I'm just going to read the story. I have a smile on my face uh, uh, because that will help me get through this massive, massive injustice happening. And it's always intriguing. That's one thing about this this uh, show. I end up finding new ways for people to be cruel to one another and to hurt one another. That's not it. I'd rather it be the opposite. Like, let's find new ways for people to help each other and to uplift one another. That would be nice. Maybe I'll find some stories on that. So according to a new offender manual from Texas Department of Criminal Justice, prisoners whose families maintain a social media presence to call attention to their incarceration will be liable to harsh punishment, including up to 45 days in solitary, loss of privileges, and extra work duty. That's another reason I want to get rid of prisons. Ugh. Mm. EFF does not oppose prison restrictions that target criminal behavior or harassment on social media by inmates. <coughs> mm. Getting to that point of the show where I'm starting to lose my voice. All right. <clears throat> on social... Okay. Da -da 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 -da. Starting again. I'm going to drink some water first because that's going to help the situation. That's going to... That's going to... That's going to help the situation quite a bit. All right. And... Uh, yeah, I'm going to have some water first and take a little bit of a, a mini break. It's not really a break if you're listening because uh, I'm still here. I'm talking. What else can I say? It's a, it's a good day here in, uh, in San Francisco. Mm. There's a big protest. Donald Trump is in town, and by in town, I mean in Burlingame. And a lot of folks showed up to protest, which is awesome. So hopefully we'll have some clips of that for next time on the show. A lot of folks uh, standing up against him. Not a fan. Oh, I got a quick story to tell that'll break the tension. Is there tension? No, probably just some sadness. Uh, so there's a... Uh, I was going to say operation, but it's a, it's a project called the Young Storytellers Foundation. And I've volunteered with them a number of times. And they have kids um, write plays. And the, the kids all have mentors, and they, they write plays together. And then they cast actors. And it's a very, it's kind of a quick, they, they take time to write the plays, but then they do the, the casting very quick. So we kind of show up, show up at like 9, and then they, we do a very brief audition, which pretty much just we go up in front of the kids and say, I can do this. So some people are more physical. Some people are more like theatrically trained. I went up this time and was like, oh, I can play male or female characters because gender is fluid. And, you know, I like to get that message out there to the young folks because um, I feel like I would have appreciated that when I was young. Um, although I think, think now it's, things have gotten a lot more uh, in most places, kids are a lot more aware of the options as far as gender conformity goes and how one can rebel against that and how it's all an illusion. Anyway, so we do that little brief thing and then they cast us in, in their plays and um, there are some really cool plays. It was really cool. Um, one I was in, it was a, uh, about, there's this kid like going from like a pink cloud to a blue cloud and they end up combining it so it's purple. That's I'm not doing it justice, but it was really awesome. It was really just kids are right on. And then there's another one where they're they're like trying to save the the world from this like really evil guy named Bill. Uh, spoiler alert! And I end up 
playing Bill and I have one line and it's like I kind of walk on stage and it's like tall guy with blonde hair so not me but I was cast as this person and he goes up and he's like I'm not really Bill I'm Donald Trump and then he gets like he has like this cannon that like releases farts and then it gets like it uh, backfires on him so he gets so Donald Trump gets covered in farts and that was awesome and so it was fun to be able to play that role I don't necessarily see myself as a Trump-esque person um but it was awesome just to be like to inhabit this like jerk um because I th do think he's a huge jerk and his father was a jerk and his grandfather was a jerk it just kind of runs in the family I guess and uh the kids have this like you know really great reaction to it so it was awesome to be able to be like I'm playing this guy named bill who's really donald trump who's a jerk and to, to see him be the the butt of a joke and to to not win i like that i like people who are mm, who are you know cruel and kind of and entice people to hate and to and be divisive and are mean and uh just very divisive and oppressive when when they don't get their way i think that's great and if that had happened more often in history hey things would be a lot better off for all of us all right, so now that I'm in a better mood, let's, let's get me to a worse mood. Not a worse mood, but, you know, here we go. So we're going to read the story. How did I get on the... Oh, yeah, the, the Trump protests. So that's great that people are protesting that. Can't say ding-dong. Jerk. Well, he's a jerk. He's a jerk. And again, ideally, I like to live in a world where one can just uplift. Like, I like to uplift people instead of putting people down. However, when there are people who are causing a lot of harm, they need to be called out for what they are. So speaking of people being called out for what they are let's see what these guys in texas are doing guys i'm assuming they're guys i'm assuming they're men because men cause a lot of problems that's an assumption and uh tell me uh, i'd like to see someone disagree with me about that we'd have a discussion but i think i'd be right all right EFF does not oppose prison restrictions that target criminal behavior. I'm going to start from the beginning because da 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 da. Okay. According to a new offender manual from Texas Department of Criminal Justice, prisoners whose families maintain a social justice, social, nope, social media presence to call attention to their incarceration will be liable to harsh punishment, including up to 45 days in solitary, loss of privileges, and extra work duty. EFF does not oppose prison restrictions that target criminal behavior or harassment on social media by inmates. However, However, a person does not lose all their rights to participate in public discourse when they are incarcerated. Supporters of inmates often use social media to raise attention about prison conditions and the appeal uh, campaigns of individual prisoners. This policy would not only prohibit the prisoners' exercise of their First Amendment rights, but also prevent the public from exercising their First Amendment rights to gather information about the criminal justice system from those most affected by it. If Martin Luther King Jr. had written letter from a Birmingham jail today from a Texas prison, this policy would prohibit his wife from publishing it on his social media accounts. As EFF previously reported, policies like these have been abused by prisons across the country, most notably in South Carolina. Man, South Carolina, for a while, the state was doing well. You, you guys decided not to do the, the, the anti-trans bathroom bill, and now here you go again, just getting yourself into more trouble. All right, most notably in South Carolina, where inmates sometimes received more than a decade in solitary confinement for maintaining a presence on social media? Fuck that! Ah! Jesus, that's sick. Oh, and that's the end of the article. So, all right, it's 1.14, and that's that's what got me. I always find a moment in the show, not always, but quite often, where I just lose it, and I f just, just despair, full of lots of despair. Oh, that's so sickening. Um, all right, here's something. 
else. All right, this also comes from a super mainstream source, but the idea of this happening, I feel, is worth being discussed. AP Newsbreak, South Dakota tribe sues feds over ER closure. And this was written by Regina Garcia Cano, and this came out um, yesterday, April 28th. It's from Sioux Falls. A Native American tribe in South Dakota sued the federal government Thursday over the nearly five-month closure of the only emergency room on its reservation. The federal lawsuit filed Thursday by the Rosebud Sioux Tribe asks that federal officials be forced to reopen the emergency room at the hospital administered by the Indian Health Service. The agency shuttered the ER in early December, two weeks after federal inspectors uncovered serious failures that they said put patients' lives at risk. The lawsuit, which the Associated Press obtained ahead of it being filed, contends that the Indian Health Service, an arm of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, broke the law because an evaluation of the impact of the closure wasn't submitted to Congress at least a year before it was shut down, as required by the Indian Health Care Improvement Act. That evaluation must include several factors, including the quality of health care that would remain after such a closure, as well as the views of the tribe affected. It also requires the government to take into account how far tribal members would have to go to get care. IHS provides free health care to enrolled tribal members as part of the government's treaty obligations to Native American tribes. 35-bed Rosebud Hospital has nearly 13,000 emergency room visits during the fiscal year that ended in September, or had nearly 13,000 emergency room visits during the fiscal year that ended in September. Since, de since the December 5th closure, patients have had to go to hospitals about 50 miles away in Valentine, Nebraska and Winter, South Dakota. The lawsuit alleges that in six weeks following the emergency rooms shut down, five people died and two babies were born in ambulances on the way to the nearest hospitals. IHS's decision has caused the tribe and its members immediate and irreparable injury, according to the lawsuit, which lists as defendants the federal government, the Health and Human Services Department, and Secretary Sylvia Burwell, IHS, and its top official, Mary Smith, and the director of the IHS's, IHS's regional office, Rear Admiral, Admiral? Um, Kevin Meeks. A spokeswoman for the Department of Health and Human Services said Thursday that the agency does not comment on pending uh, litigation. Former U.S. Attorney from North Dakota, Timothy Purden, who left that office a year ago to specialize in American Indian law for Minneapolis-based Robbins Kaplan, has said his company is taking the case free of charge. The emergency room came under scrutiny in mid-November during an unannounced visit from inspectors from the Centers uh, for Medicare and Medicaid Services, who concluded that serious deficiencies threatened the lives of patients. Their report noted one patient with a history of untreated tuberculosis who was treated without any apparent infection control measures being taken. Another patient who was having a heart attack didn't get treatment until 90 minutes after she arrived. IHS closed the emergency room, citing staffing changes and limited resources and now intends to privatize it as well as those at hospitals on the Winnebago, Winnebago, Winnebago Reservation in, in Nebraska and Pine Ridge Indian Reservation in South Dakota. The lawsuit comes one day before the deadline for IHS and the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services to reach a last chance agreement to address problems at Rosebud Hospital. Without it, the hospital won't be allowed to bill the government for services provided to Medicare and Medicaid eligible patients after May 16th. The Indian Health Service, whose facilities bill 
bill, Medicare, Medicaid, and private insurance for care given to patients who have had who have that coverage historically has been severely underfunded. The tribe's lawyers are asking the U.S. District Court in Rapid City to require IHS to take sufficient measures to ensure health services are provided to tribal members. The lawyers argue that there is no rational basis or justification for the federal government to provide grossly inadequate health care to members of the tribe at levels that are substantially below and unequal to health care benefits given to federal inmates and others for whom it is required to provide health care. So once again, the folks who have been in this on this land for centuries uh, still being fucked with by the government. That's my synopsis, and glad that the folks are are fighting back. Oh, and with with that, uh, not with that, and uh, I think it's time for a music break to to cleanse the palate as it were and i think it's probably time for some more prince because we've only played one prince song today and <laughs> pam is nodding in agreement and that makes me feel good so uh what are some good ones we played a lot of them last last week um and i like playing ones i don't hear that often there's there's so many he was so prolific and wrote so many and i like finding new ones that i haven't heard before um here's one called party man i don't think i've heard it so we're gonna play it and it's gonna rock and then we'll be back with some more news
This is how you make wheat paste. It's one part flour to four parts water. Boil three cups of water and mix one cup of water with the one cup of flour. You add your mixture and you stir slowly. Stir it until you get a nice thick consistency. Let your wheat paste cool down and then pour it into a separate bucket. Using your brush, apply wheat paste onto the wall first, then apply your image, and then do a second coat of wheat paste on top of your image, 
And run away if you see cops. No. <laughs> Just kidding. All right. Welcome back. Uh, that was our original with uh, how to make wheat paste. So folks went to create art and put it up. Uh, that's an awesome way to, to go about doing it. And before that was Prince with Party Man, a song I hadn't heard before. Definitely uplifting. And that's wonderful. Um, I, I, sometimes we end up on e- email. I want to speak for myself end up on email lists. I don't know how this happens. I was on a lot of, I'm on a lot of Bernie Sanders email lists. Like I agree with a lot of what he says. I don't remember ever signing up for anything related to him. And then now it's, I'm on a lot of mailing lists, but still I find it's like every day he's like in my mailbox and I'm like, okay. Uh, same with Jill Stein. Although I do, I am, have been a registered green party person at points. Uh, I think I still am. Um, so anyway, I get lots of uh, emails from Jill Stein and for folks who aren't aware she's also running for president there's more than just uh, the two parties of course and so Jill's running on the Green Party uh, the Green Party ticket and she's very much for super much most things I agree with uh, which would make you know uh, demilitarizing everyone and everywhere and giving money for education and protecting the environment and a lot of and like a lot of money for healthcare, just pretty much things that protect people and the planet so i'm going to read an email she sent recently uh dear roman obviously not just to me but that's what it starts with uh the 2016 primary season is exposing a crisis of democracy in america the prevalence of voter suppression from voters forced to stand in line for five hours in arizona to over 100,000 voters purged from the rolls in new york is inexcusable meanwhile in north carolina a federal judge has upheld new voting restrictions including a voter id law that will disproportionately block poor and minority voters from the polls it's no secret that reducing voter turnout benefits the political establishment. It's time to bring real democracy to America by eliminating unfair barriers to voting and ensuring every vote counts. Join my call to establish a constitutional right to vote today. It may surprise you that the U.S. Constitution does not explicitly guarantee our right to vote. That's why establishing an explicit constitutional right to vote is critical to overcoming voter suppression. Across the country, we see people who do everything they're supposed to, yet their votes are not counted due to the negligence of election officials. All too often, these disenfranchised voters are disappeared from official election results with no legal recourse. An explicit constitutional right to vote would empower Americans to challenge systemic voter suppression and restore the integrity of our elections. If you're concerned about the wave of voter suppression, add your voice to the call to establish a constitutional right to vote. Voter suppression issues in state after state are symptomatic of an electoral system designed to prop up the establishment political parties. We see the same pattern everywhere that partisan appointees control the electoral process, the establishment gains power, and the voters lose power. It's time to take control of elections away from the parties and put them in the hands of the people through independent citizen boards in charge of everything from voter registration to redistricting. It's also past time to discard the obsolete uh, first-past-the-post voting system and adopt improved voting systems already used successfully around the world. The current voting system has most voters feeling trapped between two parties that are growing more and more out of touch with the American people. 
with polls showing record unpopularity <laughs> uh, with polls showing record unpopularity for the Democratic and Republican frontrunners, we're facing the repugnant prospect of a general election where more votes are voting against what they fear than are voting for what they believe in. We can solve the lesser evil dilemma in a heartbeat by anarchy. No, she didn't say that. We can solve the lesser evil dilemma in a heartbeat by enacting ranked choice voting, which ensures that if your first choice doesn't win, your vote is automatically reassigned to your second choice, freeing voters to support the candidates they most agree with. And to bring real democracy to the United States, we need proportional representation, which gives you the freedom to vote for the representation you want, knowing that it's what you'll get. Countries with proportional representation, which includes most Western democracies, have significantly higher voter turnout because people are more likely to participate in democracy when they know their voice will be represented, even when they're in the minority. All of these reforms, proportional representation, ranked choice voting, independent election boards, and more, would move America closer to real democracy and help break the grip of the elite special interests who have hijacked our government. But it all starts with fighting back against voter suppression, and the best way to do that is with an explicit constitutional right to vote. Sign and share my call for a constitutional right to vote today. By standing together in our fundamental right to vote, we can build an unstoppable movement for an America and a world that works for all of us. It's in our hands! Jill Stein. Uh, <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, if you go to... I haven't posted this yet. I'm going to post it right now. Um, you can sign. I signed. Uh, that's one one way to help. I, I'm definitely skeptical. I'm not going to lie. I'm skeptical of the whole voting thing. Even if, I mean, even the fact that like Jill is on the ballot, the idea that folks on the third party don't have as much uh, say in the media. Even Bernie Sanders, who's like running in, on the Democratic Party. Oh, that's another story we'll get to. So I'm not a member of any of the Bernie groups. A lot of my friends are. I like my Facebook feed for the most part. It's like, Bernie, 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 Bernie. So some Hillary, there's definitely some Hillary supporters there. There's some Jill Stein supporters. And then there's like anarchists who are like, fuck the whole system. And I'm like, cool. Um, but there are Bernie Sanders groups that Facebook decided to like... Uh, cancel or just like get rid of and apparently it's from the hillary like pack like hired people to spam these groups with pornography and friends of mine have reported this so this comes like first-hand information first-hand second-hand information but people i know and trust have said that they received like people were spamming these groups with porn and so then people would report them to the facebook uh, and so Facebook had to take down these groups. And so like hundreds of thousands of organizers and Bernie supporters were then had their, uh, their communication restricted on Facebook. And that's pretty gross. That's really, really gross. Um, so with that being said, I'll, I'll add the Jill Stein thing in a bit when I can multitask. I can multitask, but I feel if I add it right now, I'm not going to be giving the, the show my full attention. So you can also just check out, uh, you can, where can you check it out? Uh, you can go to, what's the official, the official place to find Jill Stein? I would guess Green Party. I guess you type in Jill Stein, um, Jill 2016. Um, yes. Jill2016.com. There we go. Problem solved. Jill2016.com. Uh, Jill Stein for president. Uh, a new society. A new economy. Hashtag, it's in our hands. And uh, 
she also is inviting Sanders to cooperate on political revolution and real democracy, which is pretty badass. A lot of the times, the, the folks are running against each other, and there's a lot of, like, people are attacking one another, and it's like, if everyone really wanted a better world, it'd be like, let's all learn how to work together and, you know, share our resources. And instead, it's a lot of people just fighting with one another, and that's gross and childlike and dumb and very regressive and reductive and ugh. It's like, I don't want any of that. So I, it would be great if, if Bernie were to hop on board with Jill Stein and if they could collaborate and share their resources and share their followers because they stand for a lot of the same things. Um, so I'll read a little bit from her page since I'm at her page. Why not? Americans deserve real solutions for the economic, social, and environmental crises we face, but the broken political system is only making things worse. It's time to build a people's movement to end unemployment and poverty, avert climate catastrophe, build a sustainable, just economy, and recognize the dignity and human rights of every person. The power to create this new world is not in our hopes, it's not in our dreams, it's in our hands. Um, support Jill Stein's people-powered campaign. You can donate if you, if you want to, and if you're able to. Join with thousands of your neighbors to build the momentum for real change. Support Jill Stein's people-powered campaign today. Anything you give will be matched dollar for dollar by federal matching funds. Let's read about why she's running, uh, why Jill is running for president with the Green Party. Oh, it's pretty much what I just read. Uh, we are being battered by unemployment and inequality. Yep, that's exactly it. So... That's that's her platform, and uh, hard to find fault in that. And I can find fault in a lot of things. <laughs> I'm a bit of a cynic. I'm an optimist and a cynic. So that's great. So Target, I'm not into businesses, big corporations at all. However, when they stand up for good things, I, I think that's great. I'm not encouraging anyone to go to Target or to give them any more money. However, they have said that they are going to make sure that all trans folks have access to bathrooms, which should be a common sense thing. However, since they've said this, um, people are like gonna boycott Target now, and it's, ugh, it's so d people are so dumb, 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 dumb. Um, so this is from All Out, which is an LGBTQ uh, organization, and I'll read a little bit about this. It's just dumb stuff. I almost don't want to give them any airtime because I don't even want to talk about them. Um, but I appreciate it when businesses, even though I don't like big businesses, I don't like big corporations when they do the right thing, which is common sense. So I'm not even gonna read it. So you know that's. Uh, and I would imagine most listeners of the show um, are not uh, going to go out and be overtly transphobic and in the face, you know, be like, that That would not make sense to me. Although, stranger things have happened, but uh, there we go. Oh, no. Oh, no. Well... Okay, first of all, there's two things to know about this. Uh, I'm on, okay, back in the day, back in the early 2000s, I've repressed a lot of this for the years 2000 to 2008. It might have been because there were some people in the White House and people pulling the strings in the White House that made things terrible. So part of me wants to forget that existed. And I remember I wrote a letter to him, to Ding Dong W, that was like, don't, this is before they went to war. And there's like a lot of folks who were like, don't go to war, don't go to war, don't go to war. And I got a letter back that was like, oh, we have to protect the Iraq people and I was like shut the fuck up anyway so the world can't wait was one of these organ political organizations that was like very much against all that stuff happening and I guess I haven't changed my name because the the email is addressed to my old name and my old email address which I still get uh, so that's disturbing in some regards. Um, but then they're saying that Bernie Sanders told MSNBC's Chris Hayes that he supports Obama sending 250 more troops into Syria 
Um, do you think what's being done now is constitutional and legal? Hayes asked Sanders, noting the existence of a list of people that the U.S. government wants to kill. In general, I do. Yes, Sanders replied. In three months, both the ruling class parties will convene to pick the next commander-in-chief. They're making preparations to sell wars of aggression, continued vast surveillance of whole populations, the whole catastrophe of empire. These unjust, immoral, illegitimate wars need to be opposed, especially when the eyes of the world are concentrated on these conventions. If you want to be involved in protests at the Republican convention in Cleveland, July 15th through the 18th, or the Democrats convention in Philadelphia, July 25th to 28th, contact us. And they have a way you can contact them. Again, this is from uh, the world can't wait! Exclamation point. Stop the crimes of your government. Uh, hidden costs of the U.S. air war in Syria. There are near total silence. There is near total silence when U.S. bombs kill civilians in Iraq or Syria. Uh, Nicholas J. S. Davies, author of *Blood on Our Hands: The American Invasion and Destruction of Iraq*, writes on the outrage continuing in Syria as the U.S. increases troops there. At the very least, U.S. airstrikes have killed hundreds of civilians in Mosul, as well as destroying much of the civilian infrastructure that people depend on for their lives in already dire conditions. And yet, this is, by all accounts, the only only the beginning of the U.S.-Iraqi campaign to retake Mosul. USA Today reported on April 19th that U.S. Air Forces bombing Syria and Iraq have been operating under new, looser rules of engagement since last fall. The war commander, Lieutenant General Sean McFarland, now orders airstrikes that are expected to kill up to 10 civilians without prior approval from the U.S. Central Command, and U.S. officials made it clear to USA Today that U.S. airstrikes are killing more civilians as a result of the new rules. Under these new rules of engagement, the U.S. has constructed has conducted a major escalation of its bombing campaign against Mosul, an Iraqi city of about 1.5 million people, which has been occupied by Islamic State since 2014. Reports of hundreds of civilians uh, killed in U.S. airstrikes reveal some of the human cost of the U.S. air war and the new rules of engagement. Oof. Okay. Next, Washington civilian kill list in Afghanistan. Drone whistleblowers step out of the shadows. In Washington's drone wars, collateral damage comes home. And this is also from World Can't Wait. Uh, Pretap. Uh, Pratap uh, Chatterjee writes about recent films on the U.S. drone war, including National Bird. Sometimes I'm so sad that my heart wants to explode, an Afghan man says, speaking directly into the camera. When your body is intact, your mind is different. You are content. But the moment you are wounded, your soul gets damaged. When your leg is torn off and your gait slows, it also burdens your spirit. The speaker is an unarmed victim of a February 2010 drone strike in Urugz Afghanistan, but he could just as easily be an Iraqi, a Pakistani, a Somali, or a Yemeni. He appears in National Bird, a haunting new documentary film by Sonia Kennebec about the unexpected and largely unrecorded devastation Washington's drone wars leave in their wake. In it, the audience hears directly from both drone personnel and their victims. National Bird features whistleblowers who have not been public before. When the president and his key officials look at the drone program, they undoubtedly don't see women and children. Instead, they are caught up in a Hollywood-style vision of imminent danger from terrorists and the kind of salvation that a missile launched from thousands of miles away provides. It is undoubtedly thanks to just... It is undoubtedly thanks to just this thought process, already deeply embedded in the American way of war, not that a single candidate for president in 2016 has rejected the drone program. That is exactly what whistleblowers feel needs to change. 
I just want people to know that not everybody is a freaking terrorist and we need to just get that out of the mind. We, we need to just get out of that mindset. And we just need to see these people as people, families, communities, brothers, mothers, and sisters, because that's who they are, says Lisa, a former army nurse. Imagine that this was happening to us. Imagine if our children were walking outside of the door and it was a sunny day and they were afraid because they didn't know if today was the day that something would fall out of the sky and kill someone close to them. How would we feel? And they also have uh, one more. Who is still held at Guantanamo? Because that's still happening. <sighs> Again, not sarcastic, but just angry. Uh, because people wrote to ask who is still in Guantanamo, we are sharing Andy Worthington's list of up of the 80 prisoners still held, almost all of them without charges. Fuck. And you can check this out at closeguantanamo.org. Um, this is from uh, Deborah Sweet, who is the director of World Can't Wait. Man, oh, so that's really... I think there's a lot of folks who thought, oh, Obama's in office and now everything's going to change. And granted, there are things that were in the works before he took office. Um, however, there's a lot of us who are very much like, oh, as long as the system is still in place, a lot of these things are going to continue. And he'd said he was going to close Guantanamo and that hasn't happened. And now there's 80 people who are still there. And imagine if that was someone that you knew and someone that you loved. And imagine if that was you even to be imprisoned without having any any say in in your your life. And that goes back to the beginning of the program with talking about folks even sent to jail for, for growing marijuana, growing a beautiful plant that's medicine. And uh, the idea that folks can be sent to prison and kept there is just really gross. And uh, it would be nice if we lived in a world where that wasn't the case and we lived in the country. I would love to live in a country where like that wasn't, there wasn't weren't jails anywhere. Um, but there are new kids, new babies being born all the time in this country, and they're being born into a country and into a world where prisons are still a thing and people are kept unjustly. And if we don't speak up about it, then we're part of the problem. I really do feel that way. So I'm going to... I was going to also read about the Middle East. We're running low on time. We'll get to Guantanamo, and we'll, we'll see how much we can fit in. Um, so the, if you go to the closeguantanamo.org page, uh, you can... Read more information. 779 prisoners have been held by the U.S. military at Guantanamo since the prison opened on January 11, 2002. Of those, 689 have been released or transferred. One was transferred to the U.S. to be tried, and nine have died, the most recent being Adnan Latif in September 2012. 80 men are still held, and 26 of these men have been recommended for release by high-level governmental review processes. To join the campaign for the prisoner's closure in 2016, see the countdown to close Guantanamo and the photos of celebrities and members of the public from around the world. 157 of the 779 prisoners have been released under President Obama, and although no prisoners were released for 15 months from January 2011, two Uyghur... Um, Uy uh, prisoners, Muslims from China's Xing, Xinjiang uh, province, were released in April 2012. Another man, Ibrahim al Kosi, was given a two-year sentence after a plea deal in January in July 2010. While he was released in July 2012, and in September 2012, Omar Khadr, a former child prisoner, was transferred to Canada to serve the rest of his sentence. He negotiated as part of a plea deal in October 2010. Ugh. And so if you go to the list, you can uh, see there's just more and more people. 
um, that is extremely depressing and upsetting, and it's it's still happening. And pretending it's not happening isn't going to change anything. So if you go to Close Guantanamo, if you care about this and want to take action or at least spread the word, um, go to closeguantanamo.org. <sighs> this is the world that we live in, so we have to change it. We have to, we have to, we have to. I'll do a show plug. <sighs> That's not a great transition at all. But, uh, or I should say and. Yes, and. Um, so tomorrow, there's going to be a show at the up in Fairfield that I will be uh, taking part in. And, oh, there's another thing. I'm, okay, I'll get to that afterwards. Or after this, this great show plug. And this is going to be happening... Um, oh, so many great things I was going to share. Oh, I'll get to it. I'm just finding all the information for the show tomorrow. <coughs> Excuse me. So a lot of folks will be performing. And, um, yeah, we're getting there. Did I post it? I thought I did. This is at the Solano um, Pride Center. And the show is happening tomorrow night, I believe at 7 p.m. A lot of folks are performing. Uh, Samson McCormick, Jesus You Better Work, Ash Fisher, uh, Jess Morgan, and myself. Oh, here we go. Are performing. This is at 7 p.m. and it's at the Solano Pride Center. You can check it out at solanopride.org. And the address is 1234 Empire Street in Fairfield, California. Fairfield, known for the Jelly Belly Factory, which I am boy.